Well, hello, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Jonah chapter 1. We're going to be in the last part of Jonah chapter 1 today and Jonah chapter 2. I know we said we're going to be in Jonah chapter 2, but there's just a few more things that we need to, to pick up here in uh, chapter 1. And uh, the next week, all chapter 2, I promise, I think. Um, so, I was thinking this week about uh, uh, many, many years ago. In fact, this summer it will be 30 years ago. Uh, on our honeymoon, uh, my wife um, taught me how to take pictures. Now, I thought I knew how to take pictures before I got married. But after I got married, I found out there's all sorts of things I really didn't know how to do correctly. And one of them was take pictures. And so we went to Hawaii uh, for our honeymoon. And, uh, and, you know, there's obviously a lot of beautiful scenery. And so, uh, you know, I would walk up to a beautiful scene and take a picture. And my wife told me I was doing it wrong. If we take pictures, we need to have people in them. And I thought just the waterfall was good on its own. But she said, later on, when we look at the pictures, we're going to want to see people in it. And I was having trouble learning this lesson. And so sometimes my wife would just have to just kind of insert herself into the picture to try to teach me the lesson. And uh, I, I think the hardest part for me, right, because this was in the day, folks and kids, you just need to understand this, that uh, we had just cameras that we had to carry around, and all they did was camera things. And so uh, if you wanted to take a picture, you know, this is a couple on their honeymoon of us, we had to do something that was very difficult for me. That is, we had to ask somebody else to take a picture of us. Look, there's the, the married couple. It'll be a 30 years in August. And uh, that was hard for me. Hey, can you take a picture of us? Now, we are a generation, a people, a period of time that is obsessed with the idea of taking a selfie. Now, I know uh, the people of this church, and many of you are older and some of you will say, I've never done a selfie, okay? But look, it's not just the idea of taking a picture of yourself. For those of you who are, who are quite a bit older, uh, people are really like taking their phone and taking a picture of themselves. In fact, it's amazing to think about uh, most of the advancements in these handheld devices that now will you know, check our heartbeat, uh, they will uh, t- tell us uh, all sorts of information, uh, they can tell us the weather in all places of the world, uh, all this stuff. And, and the thing that, that they advertise the most is what the camera can do. Uh, they just keep advancing the camera and the wide angle and the 3D and all this kind of stuff. People are obsessed with taking pictures of themselves. And some of you are going, well, Dave, I don't do that. But you know, we are obsessed with being me-focused our money, and our career. Um, There is a big movement of people talking about self-care. Are you taking enough care of yourself? Are you getting enough me time? Um, Some people will say uh, there's a new phrase that's just you be you, which kind of means you do whatever you want to do regardless if it's annoying to other people. Uh, Counseling is often revolved around you saying what's in your heart regardless of what it may make somebody else feel. One of the parts of discipleship 
is learning to die to ourselves, And that's what we're going to talk about today. So kids, if you have uh, your kids' chart, we'll start with that. Uh, we have our kids' chart, and uh, we had uh, three different f- phrases here, right? Uh, the idea of, of um, you can't run from God, you can't ignore your neighbor, and then today, uh, learning to die to self. And that's, that's a hard concept for adults and for kids. And so, kids, let me just say this. When I, when I talk about dying to self, this is what I mean. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit means the self-pride uh, and, and me attitude. But in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. You see, in our society, we say count yourself more important than anybody else. Take care of yourself. And Jesus came and he said, no, no, I want you to think about other people. Not only do I want you to love your neighbor, but I want you to swing that pendulum so far the other direction that you actually think that other people's needs are more significant than yours. And that's what we're going to talk about today. How do we learn to die to ourself? Three things we're going to look at. Seeing and meeting the needs of others. Following the example of Christ. And learning to apply grace to all of life's situations. So pick up the story. Jonah chapter 1. We'll just pick it up in Jonah chapter 11. Jonah runs from God. Uh, doesn't want to go to Nineveh. So he goes down and catches a boat going the opposite direction. God sends a huge storm. Uh, the uh, sailors uh, realize the peril that they're in. They cast everything they can overboard. Storm is still bearing down on him. Jonah's asleep in the boat. They wake him up, and everybody's praying to their own God and, and, and sacrificing and doing all these things. And Jonah, the lots fell on Jonah that it was his problem, his fault. And so they're asking Jonah about who he is and what he does. And then in verse 11, again, it says, They said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew even more and more temptuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. And I know it is better, it is because of me, excuse me, that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more temptuous against them. Therefore, they called out to Yahweh, O Yahweh, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Yahweh, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared Yahweh exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now when we get to chapter 2, it's only ten verses, I'm going to read it, we're not going to dig too deep into it this week, but I want you to listen to this as I'm reading chapter 2. Think about where Jonah's prayer is focused. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, 
I called out to you, Lord, out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head as the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up upon the dry land. Here's what we see. Um, In chapter 1, Jonah recognizes the peril that he has caused these sailors. And so he says, throw me overboard. Now, Commentators disagree on Jonah's purpose, uh, his motive in this. Is he being sacrificial to uh, the, the sailors in, in, into the community he was in? Is he saying, look, it's just better for you, do this? Or is he being suicidal? Is he saying, I don't want to go to Nineveh, so just throw me overboard? And the reality, reality is, sometimes when we're in peril, right, it could be a little bit of both. And so let's not put it to Jonah that he's thinking one or the other, but what he does is self-sacrificing and does save the lives of others. And Jonah goes deep into the sea, he's swallowed by a fish, and he has this prayer. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but the word I, or me, or my, is in almost every verse. In fact, every verse but one. And in that one verse, Jonah says this, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. In the one verse where he doesn't say something about himself, he basically says, at least I'm not like those idol worshipers. And so in one scene, Jonah has this great moment of self-sacrifice. And then in the next moment, He is all wrapped up in his own little world. And how true of of us is that? Here's the mirror again. In one moment, we can do something kind for somebody else, and in the next moment, just go right back to selfies. Right back to self-focus. And so we want to talk about this idea of dying to self. So how do we learn to die for self? I had three points. The first is that we need to see and meet the needs of others. And uh, so we're we're looking at this idea of of Jonah's self-sacrifice. And I'm going to talk about dying uh, to self in kind of a broader concept. And so I'm going to have the verses up on the PowerPoint so that we just kind of get the idea of this. But I, I want you to understand, first of all, that the idea of dying to self is biblical. This is a biblical concept. And I'm going to make that point in a minute, but let me just say that. If it is biblical, and I'm telling you it is, then it trumps 
it, it is more superior to our belief or our culture. When I was uh, doing a, a teaching for Rod in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, Rod came to me and, and he said, one of the things I'd like you to address with the students is the idea of servant leadership. I said, oh, okay. But I, obviously I needed a little more about that. And he said, in their culture, you know, if you have a position of, of authority, which a pastor is in that culture, if you have a position of authority, you don't serve people under you. And, I, and I, so I began talking about the students with this. And what seemed very clear to me was not clear to them. And here's why. Because they didn't want to break their cultural demands to do something that might be embarrassing. But it doesn't matter, right? Because it's a biblical command. And so if, if dying to ourself is something that God is asking us to do, then it doesn't matter if it makes you feel uncomfortable or it's not culturally popular. So first of all, it's biblical. Let's do just a quick review of, of this, our discipleship process. And Jesus comes to the disciples and He says, come and see. Uh, and what we see as we read through um, the, the narrative of the Gospel, if we look at them kind of more in a timeline, there was probably about six months before, between the time Jesus says to some of His disciples, come and see, until He brings them to the next step, which is come, follow Me. So they had a period of seeing who Jesus is, what He was talking about, what He was for. And then He says, come, follow Me. Now, church, listen, I am a strong advocate of the discipleship that the Christian life has to go beyond come follow me. But many Christians in the church do not go beyond come follow me. They pray a prayer, uh, they get baptized, they join a church, they give their money, they sit through Sunday, and they go, oh, I like that. Maybe they keep learning, they keep learning, they keep learning. But the next step, the next step of discipleship is hard. And Jesus basically says, come and die. Um, or come be with me. And, and Jesus doesn't say just outright this idea of come and die. And so we're going to look at how Jesus said it, how he framed it. But that's what he's calling us to do. So Jesus says come and die. And then, he, and then finally he says make disciples. And the idea then is that disciples make disciples. They go back and they call people, come and see, come follow me, and they teach them how to come and die. And so what we're going to focus in on is this idea of Jesus' call for us to come and die. And so I said it's biblical. And so let's, let's just look at that for a second. Jesus called us to it. Then Jesus told His disciples in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, let me just pause there for a second. When's the last time you denied yourself in following Jesus Christ? And what does it mean to take up your cross? He wasn't saying put a cross around your neck and wear it to school or to work. If you took up your cross in that culture, there was only one place you were going. You were going to a hill, and you were going to be crucified. So Jesus is calling us to a life of death. And follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So Jesus called us to a life of dying to self. Jesus also modeled it. Jesus, okay, John chapter 13, the upper room, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand. It, it's, it's a phrase of Jesus understanding his position. And then he says, and that he came from God. That's who he is. He fully understand his image. And was going back to God. He understood his future. So Jesus, fully understanding that he is God, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Why does he do that? Jesus is modeling humble servant leadership. Dying to your place, your position, your image for the purpose of others. He modeled it. Next, Jesus contrasted the way that we're supposed to live with, with the world in which He lived in. Mark chapter 10. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Now, we're going to get more into that word servant in a minute, but understand, I think the better translation would be slave. We don't use slave because of the American connotation there, but it's, it's a low position. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus also expected it of us. He says in Luke chapter 10, will, will any one of you who has a servant, this is what's expected of us. Now he, he tells a little story. So if anybody has a servant out plowing the field, keeping, uh, uh, plowing or keeping sheep, and when he comes back in from the field, does he say to his servant, come at once and recline at the table? No. You'd rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants who have only done what was our duty. You say, look, if you have a slave and he's out plowing the field, when he comes in, you don't go, oh, sit down, rest. You say, no, get me dinner. And then afterwards, you don't go, hey, good work today. No, you say, that was just your duty. So what, what he is saying is, is we don't go around the church going, look how much money I give. Look at, look at the places where I've served. Do you know how many years I've been here? Do, do you know uh, what I've, positions that I've held and how many Sunday school classes I've taught? Jesus says, you're just doing what you're supposed to do. He's saying, shut your mouth. It's enough. The early church modeled it. The Apostle Paul, Peter, John, and Jude all refer to themselves in our English Bibles as bondservants um, or servants. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as, as an apostle, set apart. Why does, he why does he call himself a bondservant? 
the word there, doulios, in the Greek, it's the lowest term in the scale of servitude. Slave. And it came to mean one who gives himself up to the will of another. Paul is saying, here's who I am. I am somebody who has given myself up for the will of another. That's how he self-identifies. We're to follow that example. Uh, Now we could go further into the Old Testament about uh, the whole uh, freeing of slaves in the Old Testament. If you remember, there were some slaves that would say, oh, I don't want to be freed. And you go, why didn't they want to be freed? They didn't want to be freed because their master treated them so well. And so they were taken outside, and this, this was actually the process, and they put a, a dowel in their ear. This was before it was popular in Portland. They would actually drive something into their ear to say, no, I have chosen to serve my master. That's what Paul is self-identifying with. He is saying, my master is so good, I choose to stay. Your master is not the church. Your master is not me. Your master is not your conscience or your guilt. You are serving Jesus Christ. And in serving Jesus Christ, we die to ourselves and we live for Him. So dying to self, this is a very biblical concept. I could go on and on and on. But we could also say that dying to self is purposeful. The idea of dying to self sounds obviously self-defeating. But Jesus says in John chapter 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life will lose it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. He says, look, multiplication, fruit, growth happens when we die to ourselves. Now, let me just press a little bit. Why isn't the church growing? Well, you know, it's, uh, it, we don't have the programs we used to have. Uh, we don't have the... Uh, people um, don't dress well enough. Uh, uh, the music is different. The uh, sermons aren't as good as they used to be. The, uh, whatever it is. I've, I've heard hundreds of them. Maybe we're not producing fruit because we're not dying to ourselves. Maybe we're still pushing our own program so much that God can't work through us. Unless we die to ourselves. We're not going to produce fruit. Now think of the story of Jonah. Let me go back to that. Jonah says, throw me over, and I know that things will be better for you. And so uh, they don't want to do that. They, try to, they don't want innocent blood on them. They, they, they push on and, and, and try not to do it till they can't take it anymore. They throw them overboard. And then what's it say? Verse uh, 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Listen, those guys did not make vows and sacrifices before they threw Jonah over. In other words, they weren't saying, hey, if you get us out of this, God, uh, then we'll serve you. No. It's after. This is all over. The sea is is calm. 
And they went, man, we just experienced the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Surely this is God. And Jonah, even as a bad prophet, when he dies to himself, we see fruit for the kingdom of God. And many commentators will say this verse shows that this is a sincere conversion to following Jesus Christ. They sacrificed and made vows. Um, dying to self is purposeful. We could look at Matthew chapter 25. You can look at it later. But you remember Jesus is separating the goats and the sheep. And, and he says, uh, you know, they're asking questions. And basically he said, when you fed the hungry, when you, when you clothed, and when you, did, when you did this to the least of me, you did it to me. In other words, when you sacrifice to yourself and give to others, you are a part of God's kingdom work. It's purposeful. Dying to self uh, is incredibly needed. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, I just want to read these words, and I want them to sink in a little bit to us this morning. But Paul says this, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Here's the reason why. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having appearance of godliness, but denying its power. When he says at the end there, that's just a list. And some of you are going, oh, amen. That's why I believe we're living in the end times. Yeah, people are so like that. But what does he say? Having the appearance of godliness. Who is he talking about? People who are identifying as followers of Jesus are acting this way. Take the mirror and look at ourselves. Are we lovers of self? Are we lovers of money? Are we proud? Are we arrogant? Are we abusive to other people? Are we ungrateful? This could be describing many of us. So dying to self is biblical. Dying to self is purposeful. Dying to self is needed. Where do we start? How do we start beginning to uh, die to ourself? Um, I would say this. We need to slow down a little bit and just survey the situation. Um, and, and let me just say this to all of us. Let's all just slow down a little bit. We are in difficult times. We are in the middle of a pandemic. We are in the middle of upheaval in our country over race relationships. We are in the middle of an election year. And man, we, everybody is an expert in all of these things. And I would just say, wait a second. In our own little worlds, let's just survey the situation. I'm not going to fix all that. What in my little world, where can I die to myself and serve other people? 
maybe I can just open my eyes a little bit and see other people that might be in need. Second, just surrender to spontaneity. So if you're going to open up your eyes and you see something, what you're going to have to do is be spontaneous and act. And that's hard. Um, there's been somebody that I've been trying to, uh, to witness to a little bit. Uh, of course, it's at a Starbucks. And um, during the pandemic, I, I got them a, a grocery card and just said, hey, I just felt like God laid on my heart to give this to you. And uh, today I encountered them and, and they're moving on. They're not going to be working at Starbucks anymore and they're moving on and Man, I just, there's so many things I wanted to say. I was in a drive-thru. I couldn't say all those things. I just said, man, if you ever need anything. And as I drove away, I just I thought, why didn't I say this? Why didn't I say that? And man, we're just in these situations where we just need to slow down a little bit and pray, God, what, what can I speak into this moment? How can I meet this need? And how can I give of my time to do it? Spontaneity, look, it doesn't exist in our culture. Maybe a little bit more now. Maybe you have a little bit more time on the fringes, but... Most of us are just scheduled. We're scheduled out. I don't have time to stop and give this person 10 minutes because I've already committed a half hour to this person over here. And, and maybe part of dying to myself is not going, my schedule and my plans are not more important to the need that God has put right in front of me. And so we have to sacrifice our schedule. And we just need to be okay with that process in our life that we are sacrificing our schedule for other people. So, um, how do we learn to die to ourselves? First of all, it means seeing and meeting the needs of other people. And for whatever reason, Jonah stops and he does that. The second thing uh, in, in this is learning to follow the example of Jesus. Looks like all the blanks are already up there, so don't jump ahead. Just, just stick with me for a minute. Um, it's interesting to me that in the New Testament, when Jesus is describing his resurrection, uh, he says to people, it's like Jonah in the belly of the fish. So is the Son of Man, like Jonah, for you know three days. And he's talking about his resurrection. And I thought, really, of all the Old Testament examples that Jesus could choose from, he's going to pick Jonah? Jonah was a lousy prophet, in my opinion. Why does he pick Jonah? I mean, I mean it's probably a story they all knew. It, yes, it's three days, but... There is something about what happens in this process of Jonah being thrown overboard that teaches us some messianic principles. And the first one is this, Jesus loves us sacrificially. Now, I don't know what the motivation of Jonah was in saying, throw me overboard. I don't know if this was just another way to avoid Nineveh. But it was, it was a sacrificial way of loving his neighbor. Right? Throw me overboard. This will cease for you. And it's clear to me in Jonah chapter 2 when we look at his prayer that Jonah is not expecting salvation in the sense of earthly salvation. What he is describing, going down to the pit, Sheol, looking upon the, the temple once again, I think the imagery here is death and eternal salvation that he is somehow dependent on because he knows God. And so here, Jonah is showing a sacrificial love. Um, Jesus' love, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave, that's sacrificial, his only begotten son. But God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's sacrificial. 
Jesus' love is sacrificial. The cross is the sacrifice, the giving of his life, the the lamb who was slain. Look, we understand that, but understand at the root, at the root, all love to some degree is sacrificial. And I think one of the best ways, you know, to just kind of describe that is is parent-child relationships. Um, Man, love is so sacrificial. I mean, I I love my kids. I love my grandkids. Um, And I have eaten more pretend cakes and pies and, you know, things over the... You just, you right? You've done it. You're sitting there. Your kid hands you this empty plate. Oh, papa, papa, this is for you. And you mmm, very good. The other day we were, we were doing that. My, my grandson, Owen, handed me something. And he said, uh, it's hot. And I said, oh, what is it? It's cake. Oh, Owen, it looks, it looks wonderful. There's nothing there. It's empty. It's an empty plate. Owen, what kind of cake is it? It's hot cake. Okay, enough questions. Grandpa, eat the hot cake. Look. When I get together with my peers, we don't make pretend food for one another. Right? We sacrifice time, energy, imagination because we love our kids. We love our grandkids. Love at the root is sacrificial. And, and some would argue if love doesn't cost you anything, it's not real love. Second, Jesus' love is substitutionary. When Jesus goes to the cross, he takes our place. Uh, he pays the price for our sin. His blood is shed on our behalf. Um, in the Old Testament, it was a picture of the uh, atonement lamb uh, that was slain. In the New Testament, Jesus takes that role of Lamb of God, slain, and it's substitutionary. When Jonah says, throw me overboard, he is, he is substituting his position for everybody in the boat. It's, it's, a, it's a small example of that. And so we always recognize that Jesus' love, was a sub, Jesus' love his death was a substitute for us. And then finally, Jesus' love. Big word here, kids. Um, Here's one for you to learn. Uh, Jesus' love is a propitiation. Propitiation. Here's where we see the propitiation in Jonah. Um, Therefore, they called out to the Lord, verse 14, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as you have planned. There's the substitutionary part. Jonah is thrown overboard. Verse 15, they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Why was the sea raging in the first place? Because God was angry at Jonah. That has been very clear. What's causing this? I'm running from God. You can't run from God. Okay, I'm not loving my neighbors right now. And it's getting worse and worse and worse. What's getting worse? God's anger towards Jonah. So Jonah gets thrown overboard and it appeases God's wrath. That's what propitiation means. 
Jesus' death takes on God's wrath substitutionary for us because Jesus loved us sacrificially. So propitiation, big New Testament word, very important. It appeases God's wrath. Now we don't like to talk about God's wrath, but it's there and it's real. So we learn something from Jonah about how Jesus loves us. Now, we can talk about loving people sacrificially. We can also just talk about being a substitute. I'm going to take this for you. Um, We do that for different people that we really love. I'm going to take this situation off you. Uh, I'm going to bear the burden, even if it's, you know, paying something that somebody else can't pay. No, you can't afford this. I'm going to pay this for you. I'm going to take that debt and own it so that you can be free from it. That's a substitution. Now, propitiation, there's not a place where we necessarily take on God's wrath for somebody else. But we certainly work towards justice and peace and love for everybody that we might uh, please God. All right. Finally, um, I think one of the biggest lessons here is that we need to learn to apply God's grace to all situations. I mean, at the end here, Jonah is thrown overboard uh, and he begins praying this prayer and it's really not laid out to God's grace. It's laid out to understand that, you know what, I have a relationship with you, so I know that this is what's going to happen. But Jonah is still wrestling throughout this whole book with his understanding of God's grace towards the nations and towards him. And so I want us to understand God's grace a little bit. And so grace, very simple. Here's another definition, kids. Grace is unmerited favor. Okay? Um, uh, Grace is when you get something you don't deserve. Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. I think it's always good to make those distinctions. We're talking about when we get something we don't deserve. Grace is unmerited favor. We don't deserve God's unmerited favor. And this way of thinking is totally different um, from the way that the world thinks about God, and especially uh, the pagan nations think about their idols or their gods. And so in his book, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. Let me just say this. If you've never read that book, uh, that should be your summer reading because J.I. Packer's book on knowing God is so, so foundationary. It's so great. Just a great book. Read that in your small group or whatever. J.I. Packer, uh, Knowing God. Just Each chapter is just packed with goodness. And so on his chapter on grace, J.I. Packer talks about the four truths of understanding God's grace. And I'm just going to go through this pretty quickly. But the first... Uh, is this, um, and, and this is not uh, on, your, on your notes, but the, the moral ill, ill desert of men. Ill, and what he means by that is just the total depravity. But we don't really realize how bad off we are. In fact, J.I. Packer says this, modern men and women, uh, conscious of their tremendous scientific achievements in recent years, naturally inclined to a high opinion of themselves. The view, uh, material wealth, as in any case, uh, more important than moral character. And the moral realm, they are resolutely kind to themselves, treating small virtues as uh, compensating for great vices and refusing to take seriously the idea that, morally speaking, there is anything much wrong with them. So what he's saying is, you know, we tend to think pretty highly of ourselves. We think we're pretty good people. Now, you know, we, we, we also, I'm not perfect, okay? I'm a sinner just like the rest of them, but internally we're going, 
yeah, but I'm not as bad as that guy. And so when we talk about the total depravity of man, it's not that we're as bad as we can be. It means that we're as bad off as we could be. In other words, because we are of sin, we're as bad a shape as we could be. It doesn't, you're talking about small degrees between the murderer and you. Because we have morally corrupted ourselves before a holy God. And so when that happens, what we need to understand is, the, is that, je, that God is a, a God of justice, of wrath, of, of retribution. And we don't want to understand that. In fact, even quote-unquote Christians are coming out and, and writing books like Love Wins, and we use these phrases, and basically it's the idea of, look, God is just too loving to punish any of us for our sins. Go back to Jonah. They throw him overboard and the sea is calm. Why? Because God wants justice for Jonah's disobedience towards him. You say, well, that seems a little unfair. Why doesn't God just go get another prophet? Because God commanded Jonah to do it. And he holds him accountable for it. Because he is looking in the face of God and he is transgressing the Word of God. And for that comes punishment. We need to understand that God will call people to account. We think that we, we don't realize how spiritually impotent we are. Packer writes, to mend our own relationship with God, uh, regaining God's favor after having once lost it, is beyond the power of any one of us. You're not going to do enough good for God to go, okay, that's good enough. You're not going to act nice enough. And you know what? God is, is totally sovereign and free. He doesn't need you. And so any relationship we have with God is because of His unmerited favor. Grace is also the source of our salvation, right? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. Look, it's by God's grace. Grace is the promise of salvation. Not only does it the source of salvation, but it's his grace that gives us the strength to go on. And then finally, grace is the motivation for the Christian life. And here's here's my point here. If you don't understand how far you have been separated from God, how evil your sin is, how undeserving you are of salvation, how incapable you are in saving yourself, if somehow you have found in yourself some moral thing that you want to hold before a holy God and say, did you see this? Have you seen what I have done? Isaiah says, yeah, whatever that thing is, it's like a filthy rag. Could you imagine just holding filth up to God and saying, have you seen this? If you are holding on to that, that you have somehow become good enough, that you have somehow earned God's grace, that you have somehow shined a light and God has seen you from above, because you have a halo, you have missed the entire gospel story. While we were yet sinners, rebelling against God, shaking our fist at God, angry at God, hating God, He died for us. There is nothing 
that you have done to deserve that love. And it's because we understand that that we love other people from different tribes, different colors, different economic places, different places on the earth, because none of us deserve it but by the grace of God. That's what motivates us to love other people. Look, dying to self means I don't need to hear your resume for why you should be doing this or I should be doing something differently because of your experience. We all come as filthy, rebellious prophets sinking into the deep of the sea hoping that in God's mercy He sends a fish. That's who we are. We don't deserve any of this. And if you think you deserve something that somebody else doesn't deserve, that is a scary situation to be in. I don't know what that thing is that you've convinced yourself because you were born here because of your color, because of your economic position because you feel like you've worked harder than other people because you've been in the church so many years because you're a Baptist and not a Pentecostal or you're a Pentecostal and not a I don't know whatever it is give it up so here's some application and action Um, first of all just if you haven't already receive God's grace and commit to following him and let me just put it this way The men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. If you're listening to this and you have not understand that, man, God is all-powerful, that He will judge sin, that He loved you so much that He sent His Son, and just you give of yourself and you say, I confess that I'm a sinner and I give my life to you and I want to follow you and I want to grow and I want to learn to die to myself that others might come to know you. Man, receive God's grace. But I know that I'm speaking to a crowd of people that say, Dave, I've prayed that prayer. I've done that thing. And what you need to do, what you need to understand is that you need to ask God if there are areas in your life that you need to die to. Let me be very clear here. The application point is this. That you pray to God to ask Him to reveal to you areas of your life that you might need to die to. What I'm not asking you to do is pray that God would reveal to me areas of my life that I need to die to. That I'm not asking you to pray that God would reveal to your spouse areas of his life or her life that she needs to die to. I'm not asking you to reveal to that person that sits across the pew from you or that Facebook friend who has a different view than you do. I'm asking you to pray, God, reveal to me if there's areas in my life that I have not died to and be willing to listen to what God says and repent. Maybe if we all die to ourselves in a deeper, more meaningful way, we'll see people come to fear God, make sacrifices, and vow to follow the Lord. 
And so embrace this idea of grace. That everything I have, I don't deserve. And you say, Dave, I worked really hard for it. You know what? Man, that's one of the pleasures that I've had of being able to travel um, the few times that I have. You know, man, when I look at uh, some of the people in, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire that, uh, that work to support their family, I'm telling you, they work physically harder than you. They are more industrious than you. Uh, they work longer hours than you. Um, and you know what? They have very little to show for it. It's not because they're not hard workers. It's because of the environment that they live in, the world that they live in. They're doing the best they can. But when I look, when I look at the wives, at just what they do to prepare a meal, oh man, that's embarrassing. When's the last time you had to beat out the grain to make it? You know, I was just, Wow. And these ladies are cooking meals all day long. I'm just saying that, look, we need to embrace the fact that everything we have, monetarily, physically, relationally, we have because of God's grace. And we need to receive that grace, thank God for it, and show it to other people. Man, this is, this is just a tough study. And we're going to get into Jonah's prayer of repentance, if it is that, next week. And just keep digging through this. I encourage you to follow along with us. Let's uh, pray. God, thank you for uh, your word today to us. May we take it uh, and apply it to ourselves. It's so tempting, God, when we hear a sermon, uh, when, we are, when I'm doing a sermon, uh, when we're reading God's word, we go, oh, man. I sure hope that person hears this. But God, my prayer is that we would hear this, that I would hear this, that we would take it to heart, that we would be willing to look at areas that we have become proud and arrogant in, areas that we, we are holding over other people, and that we would die to ourselves, and that we would consider the needs of other people, especially those who are lost, those who are hurting in our world, and we would say, I'm willing to sacrifice for you that you might know the love and power of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. We hope to see you soon.